I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Last week, we returned to our study in Galatians uh, after Advent. We routinely take a break from a regular uh, textual study for Advent, and we do it on purpose and love to do it. And our regular preaching, bread and butter here at Sunset, is typically uh, preaching through various Bible books, longing to see us as God's people Understand the word of God better, hear it, love it, live it, and love the God who is here presented. So Galatians 4 is where we're at. We began this study late September. We'll conclude Galatians at the end of February and immediately step into Colossians, which is an application of what we are studying in Galatians. You'll see that as we get to it in March. Your study notes are open in front of you. And you'll notice, uh, of course, as you browse over where we're going to go and look at the text, uh, Paul is continuing a theological discussion, okay? He is. And we're going we're to get our arms around that again. But I want you to see as well the sermon title that I've given to today. It's on your sermon notes. Because I, I, I want to bridge a gap today, I suppose. Sometimes if you deal only with I don't mean this in a derogatory way, heady theological issues. It's possible for a person to think that that's just like a discussion in the academy and for, you know, people in Bible colleges and seminaries and people who write books. That's the end of that. Let's get out of here and get on with real life. Let me tell you something. The theological issue that's, that's being discussed in Galatians and specifically in this text has to do with you. And so I... I want to bridge that gap to to deal with that question. Why is there conflict in my heart? It isn't just conflict theologically or conflict with a doctrinal statement or something. It's conflict in my heart. There is conflict in your heart as in mine. Because as we'll see, the Bible says there's a war going on inside of us. So if you ever, if you ever, oh my goodness, what am I saying? As you and I constantly walk the Christian life and and daily, daily engage the battle to, to follow Christ and to not do, may I say, stupid, sinful things. Come on. Things that you can talk yourself into and say, no, that's not so bad. Are you kidding me? Man, there's conflict. There's conflict. Why? What's going on? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? So we want to go there as well, not just... Uh, leave it in the, in, the, in the theological clouds. But I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get after it. Uh, a lot to do and um, a lot of information already today. But pray with me, please, as we come to God's word. Father, how we need your help as we open the scriptures. It is a great joy to do this, to open the word of God together. Father, you use your word. You do. It is something you've promised to do by the spirit of God. And we submit ourselves to the discipline of regularly coming and regularly opening the word of God together, believing that you will affect us and change us and point us closer to you. So God, do that today. Use your word, even in areas that we don't even address, as the spirit of God uses the word of God to bring life, to breathe, to breathe hope, to correct sin, to point us, most of all to you. Our Father, do that today is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
On your sermon notes, of course, you have some statements of review, and I'll encourage you to take a look at those. They kind of catch you up a little bit or uh, help uh, all of us be on the same page if you've not been with us the whole time. Uh, There's a paragraph called today's text, and sometimes I let that go and just let you read that, but I want to comment on it here today. Our text really is best seen as one big unit rather than something you paragraph out, like outline. I like to think of today's text like verse 21 and 31 being bookends and like a big sermon illustration in the middle. That's kind of the way it works. So I don't have it outlined more than one section. I just have one section on your notes. Um, three points in a poem? Yeah, not so much. So bookends with a familiar Old Testament story, best summarized, I suppose, by one writer, which is why I took that. There's always animosity between children of the flesh and children of the spirit. Always true down through history. Look at church history, history of the world. That's always true. And it's the conflict in our hearts as well. Uh, Conflict between what the Bible calls the flesh and the spirit of God. So I want to read this text and then we're going to jump onto this, this single section, okay? So we're picking up, of course, in the middle of an argument with, that I think you'll, you'll catch up with here quickly. But let's hear God's word then, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, as we talk about it together. God's word says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written... That Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Of course, that's where the law was given, right? Ten Commandments. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. Paul's talking about Judaism apart from Christ and saying that that whole system that he's, he's, he's going to be dealing with here in Galatians, uh, apart from Christ, you are in slavery. Yes, you are. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. That's God's people, God's family. She's our mother, for it is written. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the free wo- uh, slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, did you get that? Amen. Let's go and sin no more, the Bible says. All right. Well, we want to talk about this. We do. What's going on? So, verse 21 and verse 31 bookends with a story in the middle, kind of like, as I mentioned, a sermon illustration. Now, If you look with me at your sermon notes, there are a couple bullet points I want to comment on. Down through the years, some have misunderstood the Old Testament. Maybe you. And somehow or another, understood the Old Testament to teach salvation by works, which didn't work so well, so God sent Jesus. That, of course, an understanding, as I mentioned here, is, of course, false. Absolutely false. Old Testament, listen, no one was ever saved in the Old Testament by works. Okay? 
Never happened. You can't be saved by works. So even with a sacrificial system, the, 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 the driver for that personally, for an individual, was coming with a repentant heart in faith. Okay? So as you read the Old Testament, as we're going to step back into it, I don't want you to think, as, as we talk about law and grace, I don't want you to think, well, Old Testament, you got saved by the law. Never happened. And now in the New Testament, it's all by grace. Never. And that's not quite true. The, the, the New Testament part, yes, salvation by grace through faith. But in the Old Testament, nobody was ever made right with God by earning it. Okay? So repentant heart, coming in faith, has always been the way anybody comes to God, genuinely reconciled to him. That's important to know. Now, I also want to note this, and then we're going to go right back to, to Genesis. Paul addresses this, this, this theological discussion. He comes to the table with the Bible in his hand. This is a big deal. I hope you do this. When people discuss theological issues, I hope you don't begin by saying, well, in my humble opinion, frankly, who cares what you think when it comes to establishing truth? I hope you don't say, well, what makes most sense to me? Stop. You just limited your argument to your little brain or mine. No, Paul sets a good example here by saying, uh, for it is written, verse 22, let's, let's, let's talk theology based on, oh, I don't know, the Bible. And if you notice here in the text, he says in verse 22, yes, for it is written. What's he say in verse 27? Uh, for it is written. What does he say in verse 30? What does the scripture say? He is, he is appealing over and over again to the Bible, the authoritative word of God, to settle his case. And I give you a couple others of examples uh, in, the, in your notes there. And I'll note as well the phrase, it is written. Paul says that dozens of times. If you look it up over 30 times in all of his writing, he keeps saying it. Kind of like if your mother tells you something over and over again. If you're smart, you'll go, maybe she's trying to tell me something. Well, Paul says it over and over again. It is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. What do you think he's trying to tell you? Well, maybe, maybe pay attention to the Bible and build your theology on the word of God, not on whatever other system or whatever makes sense to you or our little brains. No, don't do that. Paul calls us, as I mentioned here, readers and listeners, all of us, to be diligent and well-informed students of the Bible. And of course, I give you a text for that, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent, Paul says, be diligent. Or Old King James, study. But it meant be diligent, to show yourself, approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, handling accurately God's word of truth. So that's a, that's a call from Scripture. Now, uh, you go to the other side of your sermon notes, and with me, I, I want to go back to Genesis, because I think the story is best seen as you surf the Abraham and Sarah account. I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah, even though it, in part of the story, it's Abram and Sarai. I got it. I do understand God changed their name. But for, the, for our ease, I refer to them as Abraham and Sarah. That's how we tend to know them. And as I, as I move quickly from chapters 12 to 21, I'm going to grab just a couple things. One of them, please get this, one of the key issues here that the writer gives us, Moses wants us to see the passage of time. It's, it's a really important deal in the story. So Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, this is where uh, we find what we often call the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, God calls to Abraham and says, go. If you did walk through the Bible, that's how it was. God says they called Abraham and said, go. Go from the land that I'll show you. And he's going to promise him three things. Land, descendants, 
and blessing. Those are the three elements in the Abrahamic covenant. Blessing, of course, as we saw in Galatians, includes the blessing of Messiah coming through his line, blessing for the whole world. God had that in mind the whole time when he said this. So here's the promise, blessing. Now, Abraham and Sarah, of course, at this moment, have how many children? None, none. So, so that's kind of a deal. If you're going to have descendants, Abraham, we're told in verse 4, is 75 at this moment. Well, that's kind of interesting. Um, 75, 75. He's 10 years older than Sarah, we'll discover in the text. So she is 65, and God says, hey, guess what? You're going to be parents. Well, wonderful, of course, I guess, if you haven't had kids, been unable to have children. Some of you know that pain. It was Abraham and Sarah's, along with a number of other key people in the Bible who struggled to have kids. Well, that's part of this story. And the time keeps getting mentioned. So that's chapter 12. Now, I'm going to move ahead to chapter 15, okay? I'm just surfing, and I'm leaving out a whole bunch of things. So sorry, but, but really after certain things. God shows up in chapter 15 for another moment when he reviews and kind of renews that. Abraham, go outside, look at the stars of the sky. So shall your descendants be. You're going to have kids like that, descendants. And of course, Genesis 15, 6 is a key moment in the story where you read, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul makes a deal about that in Romans chapter 4. So Abraham believed, he believed God. And all through this chapter, God talks about offspring. And then, of course, God cuts a unilateral covenant. That means he's the only maker of the covenant. He does not ask Abraham for his assent. God says, this I will do, and I swear by myself that I will do it. The end. He doesn't say, let's shake hands on it. There's only one hand. Huh? How about that? It's his. So that's what's going on in Genesis 15. Uh, Descendants to your offspring. Now then, Genesis 16. And we start stepping into the, to the, some of the details that we, we see referenced in Galatians chapter 4. It seems that in a trip to, to Egypt, Abraham and Sarah picked up, among all kinds of other things, a young Egyptian gal by the name of Hagar. Okay, I know she shows up in comic strips, but that's somebody else. If you follow comic strips, this isn't her. So Hagar is a younger gal, and as, as we're going to notice along the way here, God had said you're going to have kids, but you know what's going on? The calendar keeps turning, like a decade. Ten years have gone by. No kids. Abraham is 85 now. Sarah is 75. God made a promise a decade ago, right, to already senior citizens. And if you, you, listen, you find it hard to wait for God to do things, don't you? That's, that's a constant down through the ages with God's people. God isn't late. He is calm. He's, he's not trying to figure it out. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's not in a hurry. He's never late. And you and I are going, come on, fix this, right? Solve it. Change that person. Good night. If I were you, I sure would. We, we say things like that in our hearts to God, don't we? Man. So a decade has gone by. Well, in chapter 16, they've, Abraham and Sarah get their heads together. They talk about this, and they use a, a culturally okay method of surrogacy that wasn't God's plan. 
A lot of discussion about that. But uh, for a family without kids, uh, it's possible for to, to have a surrogate, in this case, an Egyptian handmaid, who's young and fruitful, as opposed to a 75-year-old lady who's never had a kid in her life. Where do you, who's most likely to, to carry a child? And Sarah says, Abraham, seriously now. And so, bingo, Abraham fathers a child with Hagar following the custom of the day, and that was not what God had in mind. And you notice right away, I'm in chapter 16, right away in verse 4, there are problems in the home. This wasn't such a swimmingly good idea. No, right away, Hagar, the, the slave from Egypt, begins to look down her beautiful little Egyptian nose at Sarah. And she begins to say things like, I can't possibly sweep the floor. I'm carrying the air. Or whatever she says. I'm reading between the lines. All I know is it says she looked with contempt on her mistress. So right away there's jealousy. Right away there's a rift between these two ladies. Young, Hager, pregnant, and Sarah, who her whole life wishes she could have had a kid and hasn't so far been able to. And here's this girl, boom, gets pregnant. You see any possible struggles there? I don't know. Maybe a little preferential treatment from Honest Abe. I don't know how that worked out. Well, there's a clear problem here. And Sarah sends Hager packing, sends her down the road. Now, a good argument can be made. Hager Hager is kind of the innocent party here. Uh, She didn't have a lot of say in this matter. And I so love preaching Genesis 16 as we have just as a unit. God meets her as she's alone in a crisis pregnancy that she did not really ask for. And God meets her and cares for her. I love God's tender treatment of Hagar. Says, hey, you're, you're going to have this son. He's going to be called Ishmael. Ishmael. And uh, here's the story of his life. And, and I see you. I love this in verse 14. I see you, Hagar. I see you. I'm the God who sees. Oh, this is so good. Now, we're told here, to keep the story going, that in, in verse 16, Abraham is 86 at this time, okay? The story continues, chapter 17. What's the first verse say? Now Abraham is 95 or 99. Fast forward. So if you're telling the story, you have the person walk across the stage with the sign that says 13 more years pass by. Where's the promise of God now? See, you know what? God is waiting from... God is waiting so that this child who's going to come is not only born in unlikely circumstances, but utterly impossible ones. And, oh, Abraham and Sarah, 75 and 65. I suppose hypothetically that could happen. Let's wait, I don't know, 25 years. Let's just crush all human hope of you having a child. Let's wait till you're 100 and you're 90. How about that? So Abraham is 99, and God comes, and this is where the covenant of circumcision shows up, and that's a a separate topic, but he's talking about heirs again. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Wow. Fascinating. Now, of course, uh, God is going to clarify, if you look at verse 15, uh, as for Sarah... Uh, you're going to call her or Sarah. You're going to call her Sarah. This is the name change moment. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, which was God's point the whole time. 
Now, now track with me here. Oh, please, please get this. This is the Galatians issue here. Having a child with, with a young, fruitful gal of childbearing age, uh, Paul calls that a work of the flesh. That's kind of the way it works. But God had already decided that his promise line was going to come through the barren one, the one through whom, apart from God, it was absolutely impossible so that nobody would get confused and say, well, that just, you just had a kid, big deal. No, so that everybody would see the whole time, no, this is the hand of God. God's grace was going to flow through the impossible line, the barren line, the one who her whole life, in a sense, when it came to childbearing, had been sad. God's grace was going to come there. God had already decided that, and that's what he's saying here. Not the works of the flesh, what makes sense to you. Thanks for helping. No, not really. No, my grace is going to flow through the barren one. Mm. Abraham, verse 17, laughs. My wife's going to have a kid. I'm 100 years old. Who's going to play shoots and ladders with this kid, right? We're going we're gonna, to, my goodness sakes. And then he says, he says in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, Ishmael's a teenager at this time, young teenager, like 13. And Abraham is thinking, we're done with the diapers. I mean, come on. We're heading right back to a nursery. You've got to be kidding me. Wow. Some of you know what that's like to think, hey, all done with that. Let's give away all the kid stuff and shouldn't have done that. Uh, well, it's a little different, of course, here. Now, chapter 21, then, I just want to go there. All right. The years are going by, but a lot of activities taking place, skipping all of that. In chapter 25, 21, you have the birth of, birth of Isaac, Yitzhak. Uh, Isaac is born. And we're told specifically in verse 5, Abraham's 100 years old. 100 years old. Now, now something happens in verse 9. Ishmael, of course, as I mentioned, young teenager. Hagar, back in the home. Um, but Hagar and Ishmael, still struggling, apparently, with Sarah. Sarah now has her own son. And in verse 9, it says, Sarah saw Hagar the son of Hagar, the Egyptian Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing or mocking. Now, I remember a Hebrew professor talking about that term. Um, and Isaac, you know, I mean, you probably afterwards, you're going to come down and fill me in on all this. I know, because uh, you know this stuff. Um, but there's a lot that could, that, that's going on here. This is, this is probably not just a one moment. This isn't laughter like, no, look at that. He's just a baby. Ha ha. That isn't this. It's, it's the kind of laughter that another mother, Sarah, looks at and says, you're not doing that with my kid. This is mother bear moment, okay? Uh-uh, no, no. And there comes then, verse 10, this, this verse that's quoted in Galatians 4 that says, you know what? This, this other boy, this son, is not going to grow up with mine. Now track with this. You cannot have two primary heirs, can you? You can't have two primary, you can't have two. There's got to be one. There's the son of the flesh. There's a son of promise. It's not casting aspersions on Hagar or the other circumstances. It's saying there's two kids and these two systems cannot coexist. There's got to be one heir, not two. So that Verse 10 then says, uh, cast out the slave woman, and indeed, off she goes. 
Now, if you look at your study notes here, just a number of details, some I won't even comment on, but uh, of, of course, uh, this promised Abraham, as we've seen it in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, this is well before the law given about Sinai. Paul makes a point of that in Galatians. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're trying to help God out. What a bad idea. And I mentioned Arab-Israeli conflict. Yeah, it kind of started back here. Thanks, guys. What a brilliant idea. Uh, it's been going on ever since. Ishmael, born to Hagar, persecutes Isaac. Even as there was animosity between the two ladies, there's animosity between the boys. The two cannot coexist. You've seen the bumper sticker, Coexist. Right? It's all over, the, uh, all over, it seems. I'm not at all against uh, being kind to people who disagree with us. I think that's a, a thing God calls us to. But, but let me just say this. Two theological streams that are opposed to one another cannot coexist. Okay? There is a, there's a certain type of logic that we're familiar with here in, in the western part of the world that says two opposites can't both be right. I said more wisely than that. But if A is true and B is true and they're in conflict, one of them isn't, you can't have them both. Well, in this case, law as a system of righteousness, grace as a system of righteousness, as an attempt, rather. Law as an attempt. They can't both work. You can't be saved. This is Paul's point in Galatians. You can't be saved by works and by grace. It's one or the other, friend. It's not both. So if you look with me down toward the part called responding to God's word, this is a bigger section today in terms of, of, of its import in, in terms of the sermon. But if you come down to the second one, this text is teaching us that we can be reconciled to God. I'm going to go back to Galatians. Only by grace through faith, not by keeping rules, because if you were going to be in the rule-keeping system, how many of the rules would you have to keep? What's the answer? Well, all of them. How often? All the time, both internally and externally. And if you mess it up once, it's over. Can you imagine? Utterly impossible. You know, you know what? My heart. Yours. What's, what's Jeremiah 17 say? Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Why is there conflict in my heart? Well, listen, this whole story, this whole text isn't just about theological discussions in Galatia. It's about conflict between the flesh and the spirit, a conflict that plays out in your heart and mine every single day. Uh, Theologians reading the Bible wisely point out to us that we have three primary enemies in this life, right? The world That's the world system that tries to press us into its mold, to think not like God, to think like the world. The world, the flesh, that's that principle of sin in you that's so creative. It's that thing in you that wants things that are outside God's plan and purpose and then tries to find ways to make it work for you. Justify it. Try to make it work for your own heart when you do something you shouldn't be doing. The flesh, it's that pull in you. You wonder, why am I thinking like that? It's called the flesh. It's that unredeemed part of you that one day God is going to excise completely on the day that you stand before him. But until then, that's that thing in you. It is. And then the devil, 
The Bible speaks of a very real devil whom we are to resist. James 4 tells us that. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. First uh, Peter 5, Peter says the same thing. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, what is it? Devour. Yeah, that's a friendly term. Yeah, seeking whom he may devour, resist him. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. So the Bible says there is a devil to be resisted, and it's your task and mine every single day to engage that battle. But my heart and yours, we ask about why is there conflict in my heart? Well, let me tell you something. Uh, there is a battle. Paul references this, as we'll see uh, very briefly in a moment in, in Romans chapter 7. There's a battle going on in our hearts every single day. Every day you wake up. You may not even think, wonderful, it's, it's, it's Monday. <laughs> or, okay, let's say Friday. Wonderful, it's Friday. Um, and whatever day it is you get out of bed, there's a battle going on for who's going to rule your heart, what's going to rule your heart. Are you going to walk in faith today or are you not? And your heart and mine, they're slippery. We rationalize. We believe things that aren't true. We look at other people and we judge their motives quickly. We do. We think things about them that aren't true. We think, oh, you're judging me. Forgetting that that very same moment, I'm judging you. You see how how messy that is? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, I can tell you don't like me. I can tell you, man, and right now, in fact, I don't like you back. Wow. No, we do this. We do this. Our hearts are slippery. Our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. The very next verse, uh, Jeremiah 17, 8, God says, I, the Lord, search the hearts. Who knows my heart? God. I, the Lord, search the heart. I know. Man, this is our battle. Why is there conflict in my heart? Listen, every day you wake up, you ought to be breathing a prayer. Right after you say, Lord, thank you for the day, you ought to be saying this. Oh, God, help me today. Help me today to live for you. Help me today to believe what's true according to the word of God. Help me not to believe my own heart. Help me not to believe my own rationality that tells me something's okay when it isn't. Oh God, keep me from believing my own lies. That's how you ought to be praying every single morning. I I have to do the same thing. God help me because otherwise my heart will lead me right off a cliff. And if you don't think that's true of you, you better pay better attention. Wow. Wow. Listen, all of that leads us right to the cross. Leads us right to communion, which is a remembering of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's why you need Jesus every day you live. Now, I'm going to pray together. We're going to come toward communion. And I've given you there as a text to think about Romans 8, 1 to 4. You might go there, maybe browse the last couple verses in chapter 7 as well. But I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us to come on down as we pray. And a few more comments, and we'll wrap up some things as we, as we remember Christ in communion. But pray with me, please. Father, this text speaks so clearly to not only a theological discussion from 2,000 years ago, but it speaks to the issues of our life today, our own struggles, our own hearts. And Father, we're so thankful that we're forgiven because of Jesus and, and cleansed, and the Spirit of God dwells within us. And we're also so aware of this struggle within. And Father, I thank you that you've made provision for us to walk in obedience by the word of God and the spirit of God, putting to death the deeds of the flesh day by day by day. But we sure feel the struggle, we do. And I pray that as we remember Christ today, that we'll come with both gratefulness and saying thank you, Lord, for 
the forgiveness available in Jesus. And we'll also come with a request. God, help me. Help me. Help me today. Help me today to honor Christ. So, Father, we thank you for these moments so we can turn to Christ at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.